And the Pharisees and the Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You you know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, Oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Randy. You may be seated. Let's pray together. To our eternal triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the one who is the true bread of life, and the one who promises to and does satisfy all of our needs. As extraordinary as your great provision is for us, it is matched by the unrivaled magnificence of your holiness, the unsurpassed splendor of your beauty, the unquestionable rightness of your justice, and the overwhelming abundance of your goodness. Were all the monuments and achievements of humanity to be compared to any aspect of you, of any work you have done, they would pale into nothingness. The grass withers and the flower fades, but your word stands forever. And we are eternally grateful that your word stands forever. Because when we look at ourselves, at our achievements and our accomplishments, which so often become our idols, we are reminded of how very far short we fall of you, of how deeply sin runs within us, of how often we reject the bounty of your table for the dregs of this world and pride ourselves in doing so. But with all praise to your name, Father, it is also in your word that you declare yourself to be merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love, and so you are. And we see your abundance in the hundreds and thousands of kindnesses that you show to us day after day, none of which we deserve. And above all, of course, we see your abundance in the terrible glory of the cross, where we look and remember that there your son, Jesus, hung in our place, bearing the shame and reproach and wrath that are rightfully ours, and became sin on our behalf, that in him we might become and receive the righteousness of God. Glory, glory to your name. Father, help us to remember today and every day that if we are yours, nothing and no one can snatch us from your hand. And in the security of your hand, help us, help this church 
and help your sons and your daughters and all of your churches around this world go forward, not in a self-centered, arrogant swagger, but in humble confidence and obedience to you. Help us to remember that you have sent us forth not as a conquering army, but as ambassadors with a message of reconciliation. And help us to love one another, to love our neighbors, and to love our enemies in such a way that the only possible explanation would be because of who you are and what you have done in our lives. And now, Father, we come to the preaching of your word. We come and I come with nothing of ourselves to offer, empty-handed, begging to be fed and trusting you to do so. The last thing anyone here today needs is to hear from me. But what we desperately need is to hear from you. And so we ask that you would give us ears to hear, that you, through your word, would do a sin-uprooting, fruit-bearing, life-transforming, dead-raising work that you and you alone can do. And when all is said and done, may it be said of us that in the words of Mary, we are your servants. Let it be to us according to your word. And it is in the name of your Son and by the power of your Holy Spirit that we ask these things. Amen. Well, good morning. If you haven't already done so, go ahead and open your Bibles to the book of Matthew, chapter 16. Matthew 16. If you are new to Redeemer, or if this is your first time joining us, we are in the midst of our series working our way through the book of Matthew. So as you're turning to chapter 16, I want to acknowledge right up front that I recognize the risk I am taking by calling this sermon Missing the Point. I have set myself up for all the jokes if this goes badly today. But trusting that the Lord is more than capable of making his point, even through my own shortcomings, I do think it is good, as always, to remind ourselves of what Matthew's gospel has revealed to us so far, especially because it will inform how we read and understand today's passage. And this is especially the case in the gospels where, among other things, we are meant to see and they are meant to help us clearly see who Jesus is why he has come, what he is doing, and what that means for us and our lives. You know, as Pastor Jamie shared several months ago when we began this series, Matthew in particular is concerned with demonstrating that Jesus is God's promised Messiah, that he is the one for whom God's people have been looking for many centuries at this point, at the time this was written. And after a brief look at Jesus' early life, we spent several chapters watching him and John the Baptist initiate his public ministry. And you could really sum up his message that he's been declaring as repent and believe for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And since then, Matthew has been highlighting how Jesus has demonstrated his power and his authority to proclaim such a message. Because whatever else it is, Jesus' message calls for a response. It is a claim that we cannot and should not dismiss lightly. Or carelessly. And so for those of you who've been with us in recent weeks and months, you'll recall that for several chapters now, we have been in the midst of a series of stories where Jesus is slowly but surely revealing more and more of his identity, of his power, about himself, uh, and his mission. And he's been doing this through a mixture both of his explicit teaching and especially a series of miracles that he's been working. And as he's done so, Matthew has shown us how some people have understood this better than others. Some seem to get who he is and what he's doing. Others miss it completely. 
and immediately prior to and directly relevant to today's passage, we see Jesus work a substantial number of healings along with two miraculous feedings. And he's done this in both Jewish and Gentile-dominated areas, which is also key to his mission. And so now we come to a really interesting point in the Gospel of Matthew here in chapter 16. Because where we find ourselves today, it is in many ways a key transition in the book of Matthew, especially for Jesus' disciples. And Jamie is going to take that up next week when he looks at verses 13 and following. But before we get there, in today's passage, we're going to see two very different groups of people respond to Jesus and not get it. In many ways, they are going to just miss the point of what Jesus is doing, hence the title of the sermon. But as we look at this, as we look at these two groups interact with him and he interact with them, pay careful attention to the difference in how he responds to them. Because what we're going to see in this passage is a stark, stark reminder that we must wrestle with and see Jesus for who he actually is, with who he has revealed himself to be, not to try to remake him into our own image, not to try to force him into our preferred mold for him. And that, that really does capture the main idea that I want us to take away from today's passage, which is that Jesus promised to and has given us all that we need to know who he is. So pray for and seek discernment to respond rightly to him. Let me say that, that one more time. Jesus promised to, and he has given us all that we need to know who he is. So pray for and seek discernment to respond rightly to him. You, in seeking that discernment, then let's consider our first point this morning. No more signs. No more signs. Look back at chapter 16, verse 1 with me. It says, And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Okay, there are a few things we need to unpack in this verse to help us understand what's happening here. I want to look at three things in particular. First, we know from chapter 15, verse 39, immediately prior to this, that Jesus has just come back into the region of Magadan, which most commentators think was likely on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee, and therefore means that Jesus has returned for the first time in a while to a clearly Jewish-dominated area. He's been kind of ministering among the Gentiles up until now, and this will be his last time here until chapter 21 when he heads toward Jerusalem. So immediately after landing on the shore here in this Jewish-controlled area, he's confronted by the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Well, who are they, and why do we care that they're confronting Jesus here? Well, there are, there are whole bodies of literature we could look at it, but in, in short form, um, they are part of the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling council of the Jewish people. And that was kind of a combination of what we would think of as our Congress, our executive branch, our Supreme Court. They, this group wielded a lot of power. Now, they were, of course, ultimately under the political control of Rome, but for the Jews' day-to-day -day existence, and especially their religious life, this was the ultimate authority for them. And of course, like any other political body within it, you had multiple groups and factions, the two most prominent of which were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And to, to view them at a, at a high level and, and to speak a little bit overly simplistically, the, the Sadducees represented the elites of the day. These were the very wealthy. They were notorious for collaborating with Rome. They didn't acknowledge a lot of the Old Testament. They held to just the first five books. On the other side, 
you had the Pharisees, who, again, at a high level, were the populists of the day. They were very, very popular with the people, which is weird for us because we're so used to seeing them as the bad guys. But to the readers here, to the original audience for this gospel, they were the ultimate. They were who the people wanted to be and be like. They were known for being extremely religiously observant, observing all the rules and making up many more when they needed to. Um, but at the risk of speaking anachronistically, the the one thing we want to know about them for our purposes this morning is they hated each other. I mean, absolutely detested one another. The, the divide between the left and right in our own day does not hold a candle to the disdain with which they held for one another, which makes it all the more interesting that in an exceedingly rare show of unity, these two groups have come to confront Jesus because the one thing that transcends their disdain for one another is their exceedingly great desire to not forfeit any of their earthly power or their position, and most certainly not to this itinerant backwater rabbi unless they can find some way to make use of him for their own ends. And that's the second thing we want to see in this verse here is it says they've come to test Jesus. And we see this language a lot in their interactions with him throughout the Gospels, this language of testing. And as we've seen elsewhere, it carries a little bit of a connotation of bad faith Because for all the times that Jesus has tried to teach and show them otherwise, they are still trying to see if they can figure out some way to manipulate him, to use him, or if not to just discredit him to accomplish their own ends. Why? Well, remember again that Jesus has just performed two miraculous feedings where he's fed the 5,000, he's fed the 4,000. And in their day, do you know what you have if you can keep 5,000 men well-fed? You have an army. That's what you have. If you can keep that many men well-fed and ready to go, you have built an army. And we have to remember that always in the background of this is operating the assumption, their assumption, that the Messiah was going to be a military and political savior. So this, these miracles must have been especially enticing for these groups who so desperately wanted to overthrow the yoke of Rome to say, oh, look what this guy can do. That would be handy to have on our side. Let's see what we can do about this. So so here's an early application question for us to consider this morning. Where in your life, where in my life, whether intentionally or inadvertently, are we trying to use Jesus for our own purposes rather than submitting them to him? I don't need out loud feedback, but I I would encourage you to consider that today. Where Where are we doing the exact same thing, but just for our own purposes? So that's the second thing, is that they've come to test him. The third thing we want to see that will inform this passage for us is how they are testing him. What does it say? It says, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Not a literal sign, of course. Now, I do have to acknowledge, if you were a pastor preaching this passage in the 1990s with a congregation that appreciated blue-collar humor, you were morally obligated to make a here's your sign joke right here. Like, you had to do that or you failed as a pastor. We, however, being sophisticated readers of Scripture in the 2020s, we're far above such petty humor, right? We know that dad jokes are the, in fact, highest form of humor, which means I am compelled, I, I am compelled to tell you that had Jesus shown the Pharisees and Sadducees a sign, it undoubtedly would have said, turn that frown upside down. (laughs) Why? Because they were sad, you see. (laughs) That's terrible. That's really bad. I'm sorry. That's awful. I will fire myself tomorrow. It's okay. (laughs) 
But, but seriously, they're asking, they're asking for a sign from heaven. What does that mean? Why are they doing that? Well, he, he's done all these things, but, but they're saying, that's not enough. We want you to do this very specific thing. It's almost like dance for us, Jesus. Do this for us and show us if you really are who you say you are. So he knows they're asking in bad faith and he responds accordingly. Look at what he says in verse two. He answered them, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. Yeah, I appreciate the little bit of additional information we get in the telling of this story in Mark chapter eight, because it's told there too. There it says that Jesus sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? And if you're a parent, you know exactly the sound and content of this sigh. This is the one that comes when your kids have asked you 87 times, why don't we ever get to do anything fun? I'm so bored. Why don't you ever do anything for me? And you're just like, for the 87th time, here are all the things I've done for you to keep you alive, for which you should be enormously grateful. But I think there's a similar dynamic here because they've seen Jesus perform so many healings. They've seen him perform exorcisms. They've seen these feedings. They've even seen a resurrection. And, and still, it's not enough. So the implication here is that Jesus' response is, what more do you want? What else do you want from me? Particularly as the religious leaders of Israel the Pharisees and Sadducees should have been the first to put this together and to figure out who Jesus is, but they don't because, again, they can only see their own desires. They can only see their own ends, which is why Jesus answers in verse 4, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Now, if you were here back in January when we were preaching through chapter 12, this should sound very familiar to you because Jesus used almost this exact phrase in response to a similar challenge there. In a way, this has kind of become his stock response to these bad faith tests of him. And he gives it again here. You His reference to the sign of Jonah, which of course we know is ultimately a, a reference to his looming death and resurrection. It's interesting because if you remember your Old Testament, Jonah did not go to Nineveh to perform signs. No, as commentator Dan Doriani points out, Jonah's preaching and his mere presence in Nineveh, that was the sign that God gave them. And I think Jesus is making a similar comparison to himself here. The Pharisees and the Sadducees don't need any more signs. They don't need him to do more things. They're not lacking information. They just need to see and accept Jesus and his message for who he is and revealed himself to be. They just don't want to. And that's the problem here. It's not that they're lacking anything. They just don't want who he is. And then it says in verse four, so he left them and departed. And if that feels a little abrupt, it's because it is. There's nothing left for him to show them. And so he departs. Now, I want to take great care here. If you are here today with sincere questions about Jesus his person and his work about Christianity, if you are here today and you're hurting and you're seeking him and you have questions because of that, I want you to hear, we and Jesus welcome and love you. This point is not for you. Hang in there because the next one will be. It's gonna speak more to you. But having said that and hang on to that, I do want to offer a word of caution. There does come a point especially for those who pride themselves on their knowledge and their learning, where you can think, 
if I could just get this one more question answered, if I could just resolve this one more thing, if Jesus will just do this thing, then, then I could believe. But no, I remember when my wife and I were serving in the college ministry at a church in, in Knoxville when we lived there over in East Tennessee, there was a student who came through and he was academically brilliant. I mean, just off the charts. He came all the time. He had his questions and his notes and the college pastor and I, we would meet with him and talk through it just over and over. He would do these things. But there was always just one more thing, one more thing, one more thing. And I remember one time we were meeting with him and the college pastor said, Jared, is there anything left we could tell you or we could answer that would convince you of the truth of who Jesus is? Now, to his credit, he was honest and he said, no, I, I realized somewhere along the way, I'm just looking for an excuse not to believe and to not have to deal with that. And so this morning, I would urge you to heed that warning as well. There does come a point where we have all the information and we're just confronted with Jesus's claims about himself. And like the Pharisees and Sadducees, we will have to decide, will we accept him or will we not? And if that's where you are today, again, please, please come and talk to me, to any of our elders, our staff. We would love to talk with you through these things. But do not wait until Jesus departs. He is enough. And as sobering as that is, and it should be, this is not the only interaction Jesus has in this passage. His other interaction brings us to our second point, bad leaven. Bad leaven. So look at verses 5 through 7 with me. It says, when the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring bread. Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, we brought no bread. Okay, so once again, a couple of specific things with which we want to take note in this passage. First, Jesus has shifted from addressing the Pharisees and the Sadducees to speaking to his disciples. And although at first it's going to seem like he's just as frustrated with them as he was the religious leaders, there's a key difference in how he finishes his interaction to which we will want to pay close attention. Second, we know, because we've already read the whole passage, that his reference to the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees is a reference to their teaching. And we're going to talk about that in just a moment. But before we get there, I have to acknowledge that I find this entire exchange just absolutely hilarious. Look at how he responds to the disciples' claim that they have no bread. He just hits them with this rapid-fire series of five questions in verses 8 through 11. He says, But Jesus, aware of this, said, Oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing amongst yourselves that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves and the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Do you not remember the loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How? How is it that you fail to understand that I do not speak about bread? Again, this is funny. I love the disciples, but to use our good Southern phrase, bless their hearts, they just missed the point completely. And you can see this train wreck unfolding. They've crossed over the Sea of Galilee. They're getting hungry. They realized, oh, we have no bread. And Jesus starts talking about beware bad leaven. And you can see Peter like leaning over to James and John. I forgot the bread. Don't tell him. No, you tell him. I don't want to tell him. You tell him. And Jesus goes, like, shh, here he comes. And Jesus just cuts this conversation short, and he responds by addressing two points with them. First, he's essentially saying, are you serious? I literally just made miracle bread for you. Twice. There were leftovers. You, you were there. How? How are you still worried about bread? Now, if I were in Jesus' place, which for an infinite number of reasons, praise God that I am not. At this point, I'm just going to start making bread and throwing it at him. Like, here, here is your bread. Eat it. Choke on it. I don't care. Stop worrying about the bread. 
Why? Why are you focused on this? Why? You know, look, we, we laugh, and, and I don't think this is the main point in this passage, but I do think a point of application here is it is good and helpful to continually reflect on and remember God's faithfulness to us for the times he's provided. Why? Because just like the disciples, we're so prone to forget. I mean, they, they truly had, they had just seen him two times do this, and already they are forgetting. But how many times do we see God provide for us and prove faithful to us, only to forget immediately the next time hardships arise? Let us remember God's kindness to us. But now the second and more direct point that Jesus is making here, it's captured in his last question in verse 11. How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? And now we come to the key distinction between Jesus' earlier interaction and this one. Because with the Pharisees and Sadducees, Jesus would have just been finished here. He was done, and he left them. But with the disciples, he, he knows they're trying they're just not there yet. They just don't get it yet. And, and you can almost hear him shift into this parental mode and slow down when he says it again in verse 11. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. You know, he doesn't come right out and give it to him, but, but he's trying. He's like, pull him along. Come on, get there, get there, get there. Light bulb. Verse 12. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Oh, now we get it. Aha, Jesus, we see what you're doing. Yes, we understand. And that brings us to the crux of this passage and the point that Jesus has been trying to make. What is the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees here that he's warning against? Well, they taught many things, many of them diametrically opposed to one another. But given the context that's unfolded here, and the fact that he keeps referring to them as a single group when they very much were not, most likely he's speaking to exactly what they've tried to do here, which is to manipulate and co-opt Jesus and his identity and his work for their purposes by demanding these signs, by demanding that he conform to their image for him because they doubt the authenticity of his claims. So why is Jesus so hard on this? Why is he pushing so firmly against this idea? Because he knows this is such a constant and powerful temptation for us all. Just like a little bit of leaven can radically transform an entire loaf of bread, so too can just a little bit of this view of Jesus radically transform and distort our relationship with and understanding of who he is. So what are the leavens of our own day for which we need to watch and beware? I mean, goodness, we could spend years unpacking that question. But this morning, I want to highlight three things in particular one, we need to beware of the leaven of allowing our political, our cultural, our social preferences lead and shape our theology, of trying to force Jesus to conform to these things rather than making sure we are conforming them to him. And note carefully, I did not say those things are unimportant. No, they, they, they are very important but just like many of the religious leaders undoubtedly thought they were responding rightly to Jesus. They, they thought this was good, like he's going to conquer Rome, it's going to be great. It can be so subtly tempting for us to, to take Jesus, to take his word, and to try to shape it to our desires, to our understanding, rather than submitting ourselves to him. Always we must place ourselves under 
to and in submission to his word. So number two, another bad leaven for which we need to watch and beware. Uniquely in human history, perhaps, we are able with minimal effort to just build a wall of information around ourselves where we never have to hear, think about, wrestle with anyone or anything that in any way disagrees with us. And that can make it very easy for us to rely on ourselves and get very confident that we, not God's word, but we are infallible. And that is not a healthy or safe place to be. Rather, we want to continually be testing and sharpening ourselves against his unchanging word to make sure that we are following the God of the Bible and not one of our own making. And then third, the third bad leaven for which we want to watch and beware is this idea that is so prevalent in our current cultural moment that our lives, that our bodies, that our souls are ours completely to do with as we would please and wish rather than remembering the admonishment of 1 Corinthians 6 that we are not our own We are bought with a price, and therefore we ought to glorify God in our bodies and in our lives. You see, in all of these things, we're called to submit ourselves and our desires to Jesus rather than demanding that he perform for us and conform himself to our image, even, maybe especially, if that means dying to ourselves every single day that we could live to him. And that's the bad leaven that he's pushing back against here is that, that we can do with him as we please and not the other way around. So before we move to our final point, I do want to highlight one more time the difference in Jesus' approach to his disciples in contrast to the Pharisees and Sadducees because, once again, rather than leaving and kind of departing from the disciples, leaving them in their ignorance and in their darkness, he stayed with them. He kept pressing them. He kept teaching them. And that's going to bear beautiful fruit in Peter's declaration regarding Jesus's true identity in next week's passage. But this morning, I want to be so clear to say, again, if you are here today, and if you are not a Christian, if you're not a believer and you are considering these things, or if you're here today and you are, and you're just hurting, you have questions and you're seeking understanding, then this, this is the point for you to hear and know that again, we and Jesus welcome your questions, we welcome you, and we want nothing more in all that we do here than, continue, than to continue pointing you to him, to help you see him in the fullness of his beauty and his holiness and his majesty and his glory. So please do not give up. Do not stop coming. Do not stop pursuing him. We want to walk with you every step of the way. And maybe your question and response to that is, okay, how do I do that? And I'm glad you asked because that brings us to our last point. What now? What now? And this will be brief. But I want to give you three things you can do in response to what we have read today, to what God's word has shown us today. And I'm again grateful to uh, pastor and theologian Dan Duriani for helping to shape some of these thoughts. But I'm even more grateful that we can depend on these things because they are based on the promises of God and his word. So what can we do? First, You can pray for wisdom and discernment. James 1, 5 tells us that if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. While Philippians 1, 9 and 10 says that Paul prays that our love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent 
and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Do you hear what those promises say? It says that God delights in giving wisdom generously when we ask. I fear we can often believe the lies of the enemy that God is stingy or at best begrudgingly receiving and answering these prayers. And yet he promises to do so generously and that this will help us approve what is excellent. That is a great gift. And we do ourselves a disservice when we fail to take advantage of it. So let's pray for wisdom and discernment. Second, after we have done that, after we have taken that to the Lord in prayer, we want to test our understanding of Jesus and our walk with him against his word. Again, 1 Thessalonians 5.21 commands us to do that. And if that's intimidating to you, remember again God's promise and command in Romans 12.2 that we are to be transformed by the renewal of our minds, that by testing we may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And don't miss that because it is a real promise to us. Too often, I fear that Christians, particularly from our tradition, can cling overlong to Scripture's teaching that our hearts are sick and deceptive and wicked. And outside of Christ, that is true. That is what Scripture teaches us about our hearts and our posture. But in Christ, if you have Christ, it says you are a new creation. You are given a new heart. You are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And by his help, we can do what it says here, which is to test wisely and discern the will of God and to know what is good and acceptable and perfect and to do it. Let's never lose sight of the fact that he makes these promises to us. And then third and finally, if that seems overwhelming to you or like something that you just cannot do on your own, you're exactly right. You are exactly right. Because in addition to these prayers, we need to remember to rely on and love one another. The New Testament is filled with references and imagery of the church being the body of Christ dependent on one another. And it tells us even in 1 Corinthians 12 that we cannot say that we do not need one another. We cannot say that. If you're a member at Redeemer, you know our church covenant spells that out. We talk about the promises that we make to one another to pray with each other, to exhort one another in discipleship, to carry one another's burdens, to rejoice and mourn together. Those are not just pretty words on a page. They're found right here in God's word that this is why he has given us one another. We say often here at Redeemer, and I want to say it again this morning, that if you are here, you are not alone. And you are not sufficient to go it on your own. No matter how great you are, we're just not made that way. And because of what Jesus has done for us, then we love one another. We are called to love one another. And guys, we're not going to do it perfectly. Goodness, it grieves me so deeply when I realize that I have failed to love any of you well. And when I do that, and inevitably will fail again to do so, I'm sorry. I'm sorry because that rightly weighs heavily on me, and I can speak for our elders and our staff too. We feel that. We love you very, very deeply and it is our great desire that in everything that happens in this place that you would know and see that but above all above all we want you to see Jesus 
We want you to see him for who he is. And that's what I want to leave you with this morning, to remember and cling to the faithfulness of Jesus. He has given you all that you need to know who he is and what he has done for you, which is to lay down his life for you. And if he did that when you were his enemy, if he did that when you were a rebel, if he did that when you fought him tooth and nail, how much more, the word tells us, will he do so when you are his? When you are his. And so he offers you his righteousness in your place. He offers to take away your sin, which he gives freely if we will but repent of our sin and believe in him. Friends, we can cease our strivings, we can cease our attempts to make him into our image and submit ourselves to him because he is enough. He is the true bread. And he is enough. Let's pray together. Father, you are. You are these things and more. And as much as we desire to know you, just like your disciples, it can be so easy to miss you to miss the point of what you are doing. And so I pray today and every day that you would give us eyes to see, that you would give us ears to hear and minds and hearts to know you more, not just for knowledge's sake, but that we might love and obey you more and every day come more and more to reflect and conform to the image of your Son. And we plead once again if there is anyone here today who does not know you, that you would save them. And if we do, that you would keep us near to you, you would draw us ever nearer to you until you return or call us home. And it is once again in your son's name and your spirit's power that we pray. Amen.